Let us pray together. Thank you, our God, for this grand and glorious revelation of your Son. We would know you, and to know you we must know your Son. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, you've given us a book that reveals Jesus, your Son, vividly, powerfully, memorably, arrestingly. Open our hearts and our ears. Teach us today. Move us. Change us. Draw us close. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we reacquainted ourselves with the Gospel of Matthew, gave you a bit of introduction and an overview of the structure of the whole Gospel. Uh, Now, this week we're going to close in on the place where we left off last August, which was in Matthew chapter 12. And uh, to do that, we're going to actually start from the start again, but I'm just going to touch lightly on the first 10 chapters because they're so important for understanding the section we're in because the section we're in is really the pivot of the gospel. Things change directions in these chapters. And Matthew gets to the heart of one of the two great reasons for which he wrote the book. So let's just do that together. First, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And we'll look together at the first 10 chapters together in a a brief overview that focuses on getting the impact and flow of of the story today. So again, the first verse of the Gospel of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we saw this is the the great purpose for which Matthew wrote his gospel, that we might know Jesus. He does this in fulfillment of Jesus' great commission, which he writes about in the last verses of his gospel, that we would be taught to keep all things that he'd said and taught, he, Jesus, had said and taught. So to do that, Matthew shows us Jesus, and particularly he shows us Jesus as the Messiah, the promised prophet, priest, and king through the pages of the Old Testament from the book of Genesis through to the end. So this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what he wants to show us in this first part, the first 10 chapters, is this simple message. This was the Messiah. Roman numeral one in your outline. This was the Messiah. By the conclusion of the 10th chapter, there is no objective doubt that he's the guy. He's the one God had told them to be looking for. And Matthew demonstrates this from several angles. First, in chapters 1 through 4, it it says 1 through 3, should be 1 through 4. Sorry, please correct that. Chapters 1 through 4, Matthew shows he had the background. He had the background. What's the first thing he lights into? He lights into the genealogy. If uh, a person was the Messiah, then he's got to be what... Matthew says in verse 1, he's got to be the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why? Well, because as God had promised to Mary that her seed would crush the skull of the serpent, God had promised to Abram that his seed, the same seed, that in his seed all the families of the earth, and he also said all the nations of the earth, would be blessed. So all the families, all the nations of the earth had been cursed in Adam's fall, in his sin, in his crime. The seed would reverse that. The Messiah would redeem his people 
from those effects. All the nations, not just Israel. Now Abram would have a seed, and from his seed would come the nation of Israel. But the mission of his individual seed, this one person, would not just be about the nation of Israel. It would be about all the families, all the nations of the earth, to which just about every one of us in this room says, well, thank God, because most of us are not children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, ethnically. Um, But that is where our clause comes in. So he's got to be physically descended both from Abraham and from David. Why David? Because God promised David that he'd never lack a seed, there's that word again, to sit on the throne. And he was promised a seed who would bear rule over all of the nations, who would shatter them as uh, uh, with an iron rod, shatter them like a potter's vessel, that he would be the king over all. So Messiah must be son of David, must be son of Abram, and this genealogy demonstrates that, that he comes from Abram through David, uh, not from the cursed line of uh, Jeconiah, but he comes through him, and not just the genealogy, but he comes as the fulfillment of prophecy. This is very prominent in chapters 1 through 4. Prophecy after prophecy is said to have been fulfilled in the events of Jesus' conception, birth, and childhood. Conception, you say? Well, he might have manipulated some things, but you you don't pick your parents. You don't pick your conception. Uh, Indeed, Jesus' conception was in fulfillment to prophecy. What prophecy? We read in chapter 1 that uh, Joseph is uh, engaged to this virgin named Mary, and suddenly this virgin uh, is with child. And Joseph, thinking that this happened as it usually happened, is thinking that he needs to end this engagement, though he doesn't want to embarrass her because it it fits with nothing he knows about her character. Absolutely baffled and heartbroken. And an angel comes and says, oh no, this child is a child of the Most High. And in fact, he is coming in fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. Matthew 1.25, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. Why does he quote that? Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. See, these are things that point to Jesus as the one who God said to be looking for. Prophecy is fulfilled over and over in the events of his childhood. He goes to uh, Egypt fleeing from Uh, the murderous rage of King Herod and comes back and that causes Matthew to note that the Old Testament spoke of God's son is going to Egypt and being called from Egypt. And he settles down in this despised backwater village of Nazareth and that uh, calls Matthew to mind that the prophets had collectively said that he would be despised and not impressive, wouldn't come from an impressive place. And so it goes on and on, fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy in the events of his birth, his childhood, and, and his heritage. But also we see in these chapters, as he enters public life in chapter 3, well, first we're introduced to John the Baptist, who after four centuries of silence, the word of God not coming to a prophet, suddenly the word of God comes. The, the curtains are parted once again, and God speaks, raises up John the Baptist. And what does John the Baptist come to say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we're told that he is a fulfillment of prophecy that's really about Jesus and that he comes to prepare the way for Jesus. So this is still about Jesus. You say, I thought we had shifted to John. Yeah, we shifted to John who wants to introduce us to Jesus. It's still about Jesus. He comes to prepare the way of the Lord, to lower the hills and raise the valleys, to make his path straight. And so he comes uh, heralding in the wilderness the coming of Jesus Christ and lo and behold, here comes Jesus Christ. 
as he's baptizing one day in the Jordan River, not spattering water on people, but dunking them under the water. That's what baptism means. And here comes Jesus, and John is absolutely horrified. All these people are coming to signify their repentance. Why is he here? John knows he has no sins of which to repent. He feels that Jesus, if anything, should baptize him. But Jesus says, oh no, let us fulfill all righteousness. And so at Jesus' word, John baptizes Jesus, and what happens? The heavens open. The Holy Spirit descends visibly as a dove on Jesus Christ, just as prophecy had said would happen. Isaiah 11, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Isaiah 42, my servant I have anointed, I've put my spirit on him. And there is the Holy Spirit coming and resting, not on John, but on the Lord Jesus Christ. And does that end the scene? No, then we hear the voice of the Father from heaven. Matthew 3.17 saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What is all this telling you? This is the guy. This is the guy. This individual is the one that that, that God has been pointing them to through all the centuries in prophecy. But we're not done. Then we come to chapter 4. And what do we see in chapter 4? We see, well, our, our first father, Adam, had stood a test. Well, I say stood, (laughs) but we don't see much standing, do we? What do we see? You're all with me here, right? We're all well-rested. We had chili, great desserts. We're all fine. All right. So the first, our first father faced the test and absolutely instantly collapsed. Yes. And he, he faced this test in the lap of luxury with vegetables and fruits and grains such as you and I have never tasted for their purity and their bursting succulence of flavor. Uh, Well-fed, well-cared for, everything he needs, and still he absolutely face plants, taking us all with him. Uh, What's Jesus? In a garden with a, 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 a Costco behind him? No, he's in the desert, and he hasn't eaten for four days. Wait, 14 days. Uh, 40 days. So he is as weak as can be, and here is that same tempter who bagged Adam without hardly getting his fishing rod out of the car. And he faces Jesus once and again and again, and each time Jesus absolutely shuts him down, appealing to Scripture. He's tested where our first father failed, this last Adam stands. Stands with flying colors. In fact, Satan says, you know, you you don't even have to go to the cross. You just bow down right now and I'll give you all the kingdoms. And Jesus says, be gone. And he's gone. And so he's tested and he's true. This is the guy. That's the message. This is the guy in every way. He has the genealogy. He has the fulfillment of prophecy. He has the character. He's the guy. And so he begins his ministry. He begins gathering his followers at the end of 4, chapter 4. And he's preaching the same message as John the Baptist preached. And saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. Indeed it is in him. He is the presence of the kingdom of God. In him you see the beginning powers of the kingdom of God. But there's more that Matthew wants to show us about him. He has the background, yes, letter A, but also letter B. He spoke the word. Chapters 5 through 7. You see, the effects of sin had filled this world with corruption and disease and despair, but also uh, with what? 
with lies, with, with delusions, with each of us trying to be our own God. And this is the birth of it all, that, that our first father cast off the yoke of God's Word and, and wanted to flex his own muscles for himself. And, well, that's, that's this world. So if we want a king who is going to bring in the kingdom of God, he's got to be able to speak the Word of God with authority. In fact, Moses had said in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that God would raise up a, what, a prophet like him. And that if anyone didn't listen to what he said, God would seek it from him personally. Well, is Jesus that prophet? Indeed, in chapters 5 through 7, we see he is that and more than that. Because in, in chapter 5 through 7, he preaches the word of God with absolute authority and absolute truth. And this is all the, uh, his kingdom agenda. If you will, this is his, his kingdom manifesto. This is a description of how citizens of the kingdom live right now. And he starts off by pronouncing a, a series of blessings in, in chapter 3. There's three sets of three blessings all having to do with the kingdom of God. And he gets to the point of, of what he's saying here uh, in verse uh, 17. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That is a massive statement. I have come to fulfill them. How? Well, in every way. In what he teaches, he fulfills them. But in how he lives, he fulfills them. And in how he dies, he fulfills them. And in how he rises, he fulfills them. And in how he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he fulfills them. And in his current session at the right hand of the Father, he fulfills them. But he's the one. He's the guy. This is what Matthew is showing us. Absolute power and authority. What do the prophets say? What is the marking phrase of the prophet? A prophet gets up, clears his throat, and the first words he utters are what? Thus says the Lord. And what does Jesus say over and over again? But I say to you, or amen, I say to you, I say to you. Such gall, such nerve, unless he is the word of God incarnate. Unless he is the prophet who... who King, God King, who speaks the very words of God. And that is, in fact, what he's doing. And, and his word, uh, Deuteronomy 18, we read that if anyone doesn't listen to the words of the prophet, God will uh, seek that of him. Well, this is how he closes his sermon. Look, look at the end of Matthew 7. What does he say? He ends the sermon talking about the judgment uh, of false prophets who come up, sure, they're going to be ushered in, and, and they're all told, I never knew you. You just go away. And what are his final words? Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like someone who built his house on a rock. And then he says, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, he'll be like a man who builds his house on the sand. Each one will face judgment. But only one house will stand, and it's not the house on sand. It's not the person who doesn't hear his words. And so no wonder that we read in verses 28 and 29 that as Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had what? Say it. He taught like somebody who had authority, who had the right to say audacious things, but when he said them, they weren't audacious. They were simply true. You know, there's a saying, it's not bragging if you can do it. Well, it's not audacious to speak as Jesus speaks, if you're Jesus. Which, of course, only Jesus 
was and only Jesus is. Well, now that's great and that's important. We've, we've seen he's got the background. That tells us he's the guy. We also see he speaks the word. That also tells us he's the guy. But you know, a lot of people talk. In fact, I dare say everybody talks. Every two years we've got people who talk, huh? They come and they talk and they tell us all the wonderful things they're going to do for us, all the horrible things they're going to fix and all the wonderful things they're going to do. And where are we a, 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 a couple of years after their election? We're hearing them tell, we're in the same place hearing them tell us why we should reelect them because this time they really will do all these wonderful things. And somebody else says, oh, no, he won't, but I will. And so this is what men do. They talk, but it's just talk. If you just step back a moment objectively and look at the great talkers of human history. I mean, think of uh, Christian, I almost said religious science. That was my cult, which is very similar to Christian science. Began in the 1800s. What's the teaching of Christian science? You read the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of words of science and health of the key to the scriptures. What's What's the upshot? We're all manifestations of God. Divine mind is in all of us. So all we need to do is tune our mind into the infinite, and we can all have lives of prosperity and of peace and of physical health and never need a doctor and so forth and so on. That was uh, uh, more than two centuries ago. So what's the record so far? How many Christian scientists have beaten death? Well, not the founder and not any of them. But they still exist in the thousands. It's just words, though. Not a one of them has, has manifested these things. And same in my cult. Talk, talk, talk. But not do, do, do. Not fruit. Or likewise, uh, um, human philosophies, which are going to fix everything and solve everything. Have they fixed everything? Have they solved everything? Well, the, the paperbacks and books that that jam the bookstores and fill Amazon books telling us how we can have this and that wonderful life. Where's that life? Uh, If you watch Justin Peters' videos, um, you will um, maybe lose the smile you started with because there's some pretty sad stuff. But there's a, 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 he just put up a video about a program called It's Supernatural, and here's the charismatic movement whose great promise is they'll bring back all the miracles of the Bible in their movement. And so there's a particular program that he has a bunch of clips from uh, called It's Supernatural, about how all of us should live a perfectly supernatural life. And he has guests on saying how you can reverse aging. This obviously aged elderly man has as a guest, people who tell us to reverse aging. And uh, he has people, he had people on with a vat full of healing uh, oil, there's a Bible in healing oil that they say all this oil has come out of the Bible. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful miracle. And the guy putting the vat on has a hearing aid behind his ear. And, and, and on and on and on. But, but the thing I really want to impress on you is what are these people doing there? They're talking about things they say have happened to them. All of them off camera. Do they do any of these things while we're watching? Not ever. Not in 100 years of trying to validate their movement. Not one time. Somehow, with tens of thousands of of phones, not one genuine miracle has been captured yet in a movement whose whose big thing is to return to these miracles. And yet it still exists. So, well, is Jesus like that is is the point of of my saying all that. He's, He's got a good background. He talks a good game. Is he just talk? Oh, no. No, no. See, here's where, and I really want to impress this on you. This is where Jesus is different from everybody else. 
in any other philosophy or religion you came to care to name. And that is letter C, he showed the authority. This word in Matthew 7, 29 signals the shift to, the, to the, the theme of the next two chapters, 8 and 9, which is how Jesus shows the authority. So let me just um, put it to you this way. Uh, in this fallen world, we're riddled with disease and with problems and miseries. If we're going to bring in the kingdom of God, which prophecy says will be f- filled with uh, health and, and, and abundance... Well, a king's got to have the authority to do that. Does he have the authority to do that? And that's the purpose of these chapters. Matthew demonstrates, oh yes, he can do it by touching a leper, an unclean person, for whom there is no cure in Israel's religion, just quarantine, but had to put a mask on. Anyway, Jesus grabs him, and does Jesus become unclean? No, he becomes clean. Wow, that's something. He can do that with a touch. This is a pretty big world. He's going around, going around touching everybody. Oh no, then the next miracle he has, he heals with a word. Why? Because the centurion who's asking for this healing knows something about what's going on here. And what is that? Matthew 8, 9. I too am a man under, what's the word? Authority. And that's the whole point of this section. I don't have to go push people into doing things. I just say it and they do it. You just say that he's going to be healed. He'll be healed. That's faith. But it happened. Jesus spoke and he was healed. He has the power to do something about the effects of sin on this planet. Not just talk about them. Not just give you a book that you go home and you can have this. Even though not anyone who ever reads any of those books has it. No, he personally does it. But there's more to this fallen world that was not true in Eden. This, this fallen world is, is plagued with um, tornadoes and natural disasters and all sorts of things. Can this king heal this world? If he's to bring in the kingdom of God, he has to bring the ability to heal the world. Does, does this king have authority in nature, in the natural world? And what does Matthew tell us? He's in a boat sleeping through a tremendous windstorm. Choppy, deadly waves all over the place. These seasoned fishermen are in terror of their lives. And what does Jesus do? Get up and grab an oar? Pass out life preservers? No, he gets and he yawns and he stretches and he says, shut up. And the wind goes, oh, boom. And the sea even stops. Which should have taken hours and hours and hours But suddenly all these waves just... Now, what does that show us? He had the authority in the natural realm. Ah, but the king uh, does not just uh, need the ability to reverse the physical effects of the cause of of, of, of sickness and death. Not just the natural effects in the world of nature. What else is there? There's the supernatural realm. The supernatural realm. Because when this serpent... uh, deceived our first parents, then he, he received influence in our planet, uh, it seems. And when he says to Jesus that all the kingdoms of the world are mine and I give them to whoever I wish, Jesus doesn't challenge him. Now, he's delusional in thinking that it's ultimately his decision. It's not. It's always God's decision. And yet he has power in the affairs of men. And his agents are, well, he's the prince of the power of the air. And his agents are everywhere. Can this king do something about them? He's going to have to if he's going to bring in the kingdom of God, right? 
he will have to have the power to face him down. Well, does Jesus. Well, here we go. On this, After telling the storm to shut up, he lands on the shore and is faced with a legion of demons. So terrifying that all the inhabitants stayed far away from them. And yet Jesus, there's, you, you notice there's no fight. There's no argument. The de- he, Jesus says, go. And the demons say, um, can we go into the pigs? There's, there's no, no, we won't go. You know, there's no fight. There's just like, well, at least can we go into the pigs? And he says, sure. And the pigs all drown themselves. But there's no, there's no real fight because Jesus has authority. He has the actual power. He's not just talk. He's actual power. He's actual authority. Well, of course, now then we get to the real source of all of it, the cause of all of it in our nature, and that is the spiritual realm, the realm of sin. You know, no politician can touch that. No psychologist, no philosopher can touch that. But the king, if he's going to bring in the kingdom of heaven, has got to be able to do something about sin. Does he have authority in that realm? Well, what do we see? We see that he's brought a paralytic. And what does he say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you. And the Jewish religious experts around him are terribly offended because they they quite rightly conclude that only God has that power and authority. They're absolutely right about that. Where did they go wrong? And not realizing that he is God. He is God incarnate. That's why it's blasphemy that they think that. So Jesus asks, well, which would be easier than just to say these words, which I've been talking about, how easy it is for men to blah, 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 blah. Well, I can blah, 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 blah too. And is that easier? Or it would be easier to do something that you can all see whether it happens or not. So if he's paralyzed and I say get up and walk, you're going to see right away. Did, did, did my saying that do anything or didn't it? And so he says, get up and walk. And what happens? Gets up and walks. And what is the purpose of that? Look at Matthew 9, verse 6. That you may know the Son of Man has, what's the word? Authority on earth to forgive sins. And what do they marvel at? Verse 8, that God had given such authority to men. Well, you see, there is the purpose of that section. Yes, this is the guy. He has the background, chapters 1 through 4. He speaks the word, chapters 5 through 7. And he shows the authority. Not just says he has it, like every charismatic charlatan does today, but he shows it. Doesn't have to raise his voice, shout, or put on any show like the showmen do. He just says it, and it happens. Because he actually has the authority. Well... That's the guy. So what happens next? Chapter 10. He commissions his heralds. And that's what the, that's what the chapter is. And you see, we have a hinge there from 8 and 9. We saw at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they marvel at his authority. Then comes this section, chapters 8 and 9, where he shows the authority, that he has the authority in every realm. And then what do we see at the beginning of chapter 10? He called to, them his 12, to him his 12 disciples and gave them what? Authority. So these are going to be his message. He's the guy, and he commissions them to go out and tell everybody the kingdom of heaven is at hand because he's the guy. And he loans his authority to them to demonstrate that they are heralds of him. They now have authority over unclean spirits, chapter 10, verse 1 has says, which I'm going to return to this, um, but 
he sees that as a signal ability to signify the presence of the kingdom of heaven. The ability to send Satan scampering is a sure sign of the presence of the kingdom of heaven. So he picks them, he authorizes them, he empowers them, and he sends them out. So now, here is the pivotal moment I say the book has brought us to with the question of what's going to happen? How are they going to respond? I mean, we see this is the guy. If we just, you know, touch down to this planet anew from the, the planet Zarkon 5, and we just landed and we read this book up to chapter 10, and we say, well, this is a delightful story. Now I'm going to read about the kingdom of God coming. But you look around and, oh, I don't think it came. And you look at the, the nation of Israel and you, you expect to see that they're all worshiping this Messiah who obviously is the person that God said to look for, but they're not. In fact, as a nation, they're all pretty much still rejecting him apart from individuals. So what's all that about? How did that happen? That's exactly what the section that we're in is about. It's all about the response to Jesus. So Roman numeral one was this was the Messiah. Roman numeral two is this is how Israel responded to the Messiah. Chapter 11, 2 to 1250. And what we see is three cycles of three. Uh, Remember the book was written by Matthew, the tax collector, a man who obviously loved numbers. And either Jesus loved to teach in threes and he remembered that, or he tended to remember what Jesus taught in threes. But this book, as we've seen, is filled with threes, and and this section is no exception. There are three cycles in chapters 11 and 12, and each of those cycles has three parts to them. And they're all very parallel, so we're just going to, to summarize this for you, as we've been doing. The first cycle shows us Israel's response to Jesus as being blind to Christ's works. Blind to Christ's works. And you see works or mighty deeds in this section a number of times because that's the focus. That these deeds were a testimony to who Christ was. And yet they didn't see it. It was right there, but they didn't see it. You know, like you're walking past a guy who's grilling up uh, hamburgers that smell wonderful, and you say, if Ellen, I could find somebody who could cook. Well, what's that? And so here's this person doing all the works of the kingdom of God, and they just don't see it for what it is. And the first of these three parts brings us to somebody who you really wouldn't have expected to be the first part, John the Baptist. But the key to understanding this comes in Matthew's first verse, Matthew 11 and verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the works of the Christ, the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, dot, dot, dot. And his words show that he's in confusion. Well, why is he in confusion if he heard of the works of Christ? What phrase did I leave out? He heard the words of Christ where? In prison. So he was a man caught in two very conflicting um, scenarios, if you will, like, like a man whose wife says, I love you, as she slaps him. Wait a minute. <laughs> I hear that and I feel that, but they don't go together well. <laughs> How do I put those two together? So what's John hearing about? Well, he's hearing about all the works of the kingdom of God. He's down with that. He prophesied that. And what did he say would, that would feature? Well, there'd be a baptism of fire on the enemies of God. 
There'd be a baptism of the Holy Spirit on the people of God. The axe would be laid at the root of all the false teachers and leaders, and the kingdom of God would come. Had that judging fire fallen? Had the baptism with the Spirit happened? Had the religious leaders been chopped down? Had the kingdom of God come? Well, he's in prison, so do the math. And that, that's what he's trying to do, you see. We can't blame him. He hadn't read the whole book of Matthew yet. <laughs> so he's trying to do the math. He heard the Father's voice, I, I take it, saw the Holy Spirit for sure descend on Jesus like a dove, and he knew Jesus was the guy, and he's doing the stuff, and yet I'm in prison. How does that fit, this picture? And so he handles it. I mean, first of all, that's just encouraging to us to know that such a spiritual giant, who Jesus is about to say the greatest of those born of women, and yet he came to places, he came to this place where he was just, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this. But look what he did do with it. What did he do? Did he go to the Pharisees and say, help me out, I need to understand this. Did he go to the Sadducees? Did he go to the Herodians? Did he go to the Greek philosophers and say, you know, help me think this through? Did he do that? No, he did not. Who did he go to? He went to Jesus and said, help me out with this. He sent messengers to Jesus saying, are you the one who's coming or do we look for another? And what does Jesus do? He, he doesn't answer in a very hallmark, you know, special way. He doesn't send him a greeting card with a puppy on it or anything. What he does is he says, John, you already know the answer. Basically what he says, you already know. Tell him all the things that, you, that you're seeing me do. And then he says, blessed is the one who does not stumble in me. A tenth beatitude, just for John. So he encourages John. He sends, he sends John back to the truth. So just remember what you already know and don't stumble. And, and then, as soon as the messengers are going away, he turns to the people and he just praises John to the heavens. He, he says, who did you go out to see? Did you go out to see somebody chasing public opinion, popular opinion? You go see some you know, guy blowing every way that the winds of popular opinion blow? You didn't see that, Jesus says. You saw a prophet, and more than a prophet, verse 9. In fact, this is the one prophecy pointed to. He's pointed to by prophecy, verse 10, and he's the greatest of those born in, in, of women, yet he, the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than he. Such is the greatness of the kingdom. But now look at this, verses 12 and, and, and 13. From the days of John the Baptist until now, so this is the generation he's going to be talking about, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violent, violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, I translated that, the violent try to take it by force, try to seize it by force. What, what is he talking about? Well, whether it's Herod or the Herodians or the Pharisees or the Sadducees, all the religious leaders are trying to impose their agenda on the kingdom of God. They're trying to take the agenda by force. And then he says in verse 13, for all the prophets and the pro law prophesied until John. They all pointed forward, but he lived in the day of actual fulfillment. He was at that pivotal point where what is going to be is turning into what is and has happened. And so then he says, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. But we know they were not willing to accept it. So then he damns that generation. He condemns them. Verse 16, and this word generation is going to be big in this section and the one on the other side of chapter 13. Not, there are few people who are, who are exceptions, but the generation is like this, like spoiled brats in a marketplace who want to say what game's going to be played. 
And he and John were both guys who didn't play their game. When we said dance, you didn't dance. When we said mourn, you didn't mourn. See, this is an example of trying to take the kingdom of God by force. John was not the prophet they wanted, and Jesus wasn't the Messiah they wanted. And, and there's the whole point there. This is what comes out here. I told you chapters 1 through 10 showed us in every way conceivable God saying, this is the guy. This is who I've told you to look for. But in chapters 11 and 12, what do we see? Israel responding, but this isn't who we were looking for. He's not the kind of Messiah that they wanted. They didn't want to respond. He didn't. What, what, did they, what did they hope for in a Messiah? They hoped for somebody who'd come and fix their problems while they stayed the way they are. They, all they needed was the Romans off their back and better productivity of the crops and better health and everything. All that was great. But they thought they were fine. And Jesus comes and says, repent. That's the first thing he says. How, how do you say in one word, you're not fine? Repent. And that's his first word. And, and it makes me think of this editorial cartoon I've seen with, with a, uh, it's a speaker or a preacher like me standing in front of a group of people like you. And the speaker says, who wants change? And all the hands in the audience go up. And then he says, who wants to change? And no hands go up. And that's the situation. They, they are absolutely, absolutely down with change, but not changing. And that was not who he was. It wasn't who prophecy said he'd be either if they'd read prophecy, as Jesus is constantly pointing out. But they're not interested in hearing it. So we have John the believer even being shaken. That's the first one, and that's surprising. But Jesus explains the people of that generation are just like spoiled kids who want to control the game. They want to seize the kingdom by force. They want to tell even the Messiah of God what kind of game to play. They want to play games with God. Jesus didn't come to play. Jesus did not come to play. He still doesn't come to play. So then the second in this cycle, verses 20 and following, the response of cities, the sinful unrepentance of many people. First three cities in verse 20, then two cities in verses 21 and 22, then one city in verses 23 and 24. And, and what is their crime? Well, their crime is, verse 20, most of his mighty works, his dunames, his works of pow <clears throat> power, a synonym for works. Most of these miraculous deeds have been done and they did not repent. So that's why I call this section blind to the works of Christ. They were done there, but they didn't believe anyway. They didn't repent. They did not repent. This was their crime. It wasn't even that they did anything terribly bad. It's that they didn't do what they needed to do. And what did they need to do? Repent. And what would they not do? Repent. And so Jesus, and this is a shift in the gospel, where he pronounces woe on them. Whoa, a curse, the opposite of a beatitude. There's a beatitude on the humble who bow before Christ and accept the righteousness of God and repent in faith. They receive a blessing, but these who will not repent receive a woe. They receive a cursing. And Jesus says it's more tolerable in the day of judgment than for the worst cities you can think of because you saw these mighty works and you didn't see them. You didn't repent. But then how does Jesus respond to this? Does he say, oh, oh, 
we're failing in our mission. There's no hope. It's not going the way I hoped. Everything's off the rail. It's miserable. Does he say that? Or does he say, well, you know, God and I really hoped this would go better, but you made bad decisions, so we're just going to have to do the best we can. He does not. What does he say? Verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. We spent some time on that. If you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to it. In which we saw that the explanation for their unbelief, as as the explanation for belief, is ultimately the sovereignty of God. Hiding from one and revealing to another. Jesus says this absolutely boldly and up front. Pagans call this biblical teaching fatalism, but the Bible is absolutely clear that God is God. We've seen this a hundred times as a church. God is God. We're not. Our will isn't. God is, and God's will is. And he says that this is because this was God's gracious will. All things are on plan, on schedule. And he says, all things have been delivered to me. No one knows the Father except the Son. Excuse me, no one knows um, the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the One, and the One to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then He invites them all. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Now let me pause and then come back to that. This is, we're going to see this in each of these three sections. There are two sad tales of bad responses to Jesus, and then an invitation. This is very, very telling. And we'll see this three times. So here's the first. We have John's surprising confusion. We have their startling and shameful failure. But then we have this invitation where Jesus lifts up the sovereignty of God and in turns invites them all to come. But look at the way he does it. Come to me and I will give you what? Rest. I'll give you rest. There's a reason I'm having you say that. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in spirit and you will find again what? Rest for your souls. Rest, rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what's the very next thing we see? We see a couple of stories about the, the Sabbath. Sabbath is the Hebrew word for rest. I know you know a few Hebrew words. And Sabbath means rest. But have the religious leaders made it a day of rest? No, they've made it a day of work. And this is going to show, again, their hatred for Jesus and their insubmission to God because they are deaf to God's word. That's letter B. Letter A was they're blind to Christ's works. Letter B is they are deaf to God's word. Again and again in chapter 12, verses 1 through 21, Jesus points this out. So Jesus goes through the... And I I love this about Jesus. It's just a thing to love about him. He goes through the, the wheat fields, the barley fields, and his disciples are there because of him. And they're tired because of his schedule, and it's a Sabbath. And they start eating the grain, which there's nothing wrong with, but it is against the law, against the rules. It's against the Pharisees' rules. And the Pharisees see this, and they jump on them. Now, what would more than half, what would, what, 80%, 80% of the evangelical celebrities of the day do something like that? If influence makers had seen their followers do something, and they'd immediately apologize for them and say, oh, thank you for pointing that out. You're so right. These guys, I mean, what are you going to do? You know, you got to work with what you got. So guys, cut it out. Put down the grain. You know, guys, come on. You're embarrassing me. Does Jesus do that? No, he stands right between the critics and his guys. And he takes the hits and explains why. Not only is there nothing wrong with what they're doing, but they are wrong to criticize them. 
If they knew the first thing about the Bible, they wouldn't be persecuting his guys. I love that about Jesus. Maybe you have too, but I've been in the, I've been in the other shoe many times of having somebody that I trusted under fire just turn and toss me right under the bus. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. So they come on him and... Um, they criticize this, and what does Jesus say again and again? Verse 1, haven't you read what David did? Verse 5, haven't you read in the law what the priests do? What's he saying? Have you ever read the Bible like, you know? And this is like you go into the Pope and you let, listen to him talk for a few minutes and you say, so um, one question, um, translator put this in Italian for me. Um, have you ever read like Galatians? He's the Pope. Of course he has. I guess. But of course his thinking doesn't reflect it at all. His dogma doesn't reflect it at all. The church's dogma doesn't show it at all. And neither did theirs show that they were real students of the Word of God. And so he had earlier said, you go study Hosea 6.6. They didn't do it. And so in verse 7 says, if you'd known what this means, then he quotes Hosea 6.6, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. Here's the whole problem. They think they're experts about the Word of God and they don't understand the first thing about it. They mercilessly object to eating on the Sabbath, verses 1 through 8. And that's where we left off, by the way, with verse 8. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll take up with verse 9. Next, they object to healing on the Sabbath. There's there's a guy in in the synagogue and they don't see a guy who's suffering and could be healed. They just see an opportunity to do something against Jesus. And so they have no mercy for Jesus' followers, and they have no care for the suffering man. And uh, they oppose and look at this as an opportunity and see it as an opportunity uh, to undo Jesus and see they decide they must destroy him. And yet, once again, there's this merciful outreach section, verses 15 through 21, where prophecy had spoken of Christ as the servant of Yahweh, who didn't quarrel or cry aloud or crush bruised weeds or smoldering wicks, but he came and preached and one day will bring uh, justice to the Gentiles and the Gentiles will find hope in him. Still the outreach. So that's the second of the three cycles, but here is the last straw, the third cycle. We see them deserted by God's spirit. It'll be a bit before we get there, but not too long, Lord willing. Chapter 22 through 50, and this is where it all falls apart. In chapter, chapter 12, verses 22 through 50, uh, here comes a demon-oppressed man, and Jesus cast the demon out. And look at verse 23. The people are amazed, saying, can this be the son of David? The syntax in Greek suggests that they're not sure, but, but they're starting to wonder, could this be the son of David? <clears throat> How do the Pharisees feel about them wondering about that? They want to shut that down right away. And so they reach for their brilliant, brilliant, flawlessly conceived and perfectly executed answer for everything. Verse 24, it is only by Beelzebul, the principle of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, I pause to just point out again that in contrast to all modern charlatans, their response is not to say, well, he's not really exercised. He didn't really do that work. They can't deny his works. But they come up with this explanation that he really does it by Satan's power. Well, so Jesus knows they're thinking this and he seizes on that. 
And he says, so if Satan's casting out Satan, then his kingdom's going to collapse. In one statement, it just shown to be the, one of the stupidest thoughts, let alone the most blasphemous thoughts and most evil thoughts ever conceived by the uh, remarkably blasphemous and, and foolish mind of man. So he undoes that, and then he says, um, if I cast him out by, by Beelzebul, then you think your sons do this. Who do they do it by? But here comes the real point. Here's the real point. Verse 26. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that if means I do. So he's saying that my show of force, easy, instant force over Satan in every encounter, shows the kingdom of God is hanging right over your heads in me. It's right here. You've been praying for it, longing for it. You say, here it is in me. I showed this in this signal work of casting out Satan. And you say, ah, yes, that's the power of Satan. So what do you do on top of that then? Okay, they won't accept this, so what is the greater thing he's going to do? No, Jesus says, all right, here's where we just stop. Because if that's what you do with this, there's no point in doing anything else. Because I do what I do by the Spirit of God. And if you look at the work of the Spirit of God and say that's the work of Satan... You're done, and we're done, because you've committed an, an unpardonable sin. Of course, we'll look at that closely when we get there. You've committed a sin for which there's no forgiveness. You've taken the, the epitome of, of showing that God is present in me, and the Spirit of God moves through me, and you've accredited that to Satan. And there's no, there's no going back from that. And so then he goes on to say, uh, he said that they, this is an unpardonable sin. And he says, uh, how can you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless you bind the son man, as bind the strong man first? And that's exactly what he's doing, but they don't see it. And so the, this is the blasphemy against the Spirit, and it will not be forgiven. And they are forsaken uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, you see that in, chapter, in verses 43 through 45 about an unclean spirit that goes out and the house is left empty so the unclean spirit comes back and gets some of his nastiest friends to fill the house. That's them. Look at verse 45. So also will be with this evil generation. I told you to watch for that word. That's where that generation was. That generation had committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit insofar as it lined up with the verdict of the leaders. And so there would be no Spirit of God on them. There would be evil spirits on them. And they would be deserted by God's Spirit. So that's, those are two movements we actually just saw. Condemned for blaspheming the Spirit and abandoned to unclean spirits. That's the first and second cycle. Verses 22 through 37 and verses 38 through 45. And yet still there is still an invitation in verses 46 through 50. As his apparently at that moment unbelieving mother and, and, and siblings are outside. This, that's a significant word I believe in verse 46. They're outside. They're not inside with the believers. They're outside telling Jesus to come out to them so they can take him in hand. And what does he say? Who are my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
So there's an invitation to any individual, regardless of ethnicity, to hear and believe the word of God, like that generation didn't. You see? You see? And then that's where chapter 13 comes in, which I'll just dip a toe into, as I told you, it'd be very lightly. But chapter 13 is the next discourse section, and it's all these, well, let's just, let's just ease into it a little bit, let me show you exactly. So what's the next thing that happens in, in Matthew's gospel? He goes to the seashore, and he gets in a boat, and verse 3 says he's told them many things in parables. We haven't seen parables in Matthew's gospel. And here's the, the whole first lesson. A sower went out to sow, and I'll just, I'll just summarize it because you know it. He sows on four different kinds of soil. Three respond poorly without life. The, only one of the four responds well. And that's the whole lesson. Has he ever taught anything like that before? Not that we see. What is that? And that's exactly, now, you and I are familiar with it. We know what it means, so it, it doesn't maybe hit us as hard. But imagine you're the disciple who's, who's used to him teaching and explaining things and expounding and conversing. And here he comes out and tells about four soils and says, thanks for coming, basically. And they're all going, what was that that you just did? What was that? Verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables? Because that didn't, you know, they, they walked away saying, uh, four soils? I mean, okay, I guess what? And they're saying, what was that? Why are you doing this? And what does Jesus say? Does he say, oh, because parables are a simple tool to communicate with simple people. No, he says actually exactly the opposite. I'm doing it as a judgment, he says. He says, verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Parables are part of the judgment of God. And so the parables begin revealing something that is not a subject of prophecy. And that that is there, there would be a period between the physical coming of the Messiah and his departure by death and resurrection and his return to earth. There'd be a period in there during which the kingdom program would be something different. What would the kingdom program be like that? Well, what was the kingdom program that you would expect from the Old Testament? Messiah rides in, conquers his enemy, transforms the planet. Did that happen? That did not happen. So, so what does happen? That's what this chapter is about. It's going to be a time during which the seed of the Word of God will be sown broadly. In fact, the whole world. And only about a quarter of it's going to respond with faith. It's going to be a time during which it'll be like leaven in a huge lump of dough that will gradually spread throughout the, the dough. It's going to be a time like where a tiny little seed is planted and an unexpectedly big plant comes out of that seed. It's going to be like a time where a bunch of good wheat uh, seeds have been sown, but they've been sown among tares, and gradually they all grow up together until at the end of this process, then there's a harvest and the separation. You see? You see, this is all very different from what they expected. The kingdom of heaven was at hand, and it could come with a thunderclap at any moment. But Jesus is saying, no, not now. This is a mystery phase of the kingdom agenda. So do you see how that all fits into Matthew's purpose? Now let's step back and look at, look at what Matthew's done. Chapters 1 through 10, what has he said basically? It's, thank you. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the guy. He has the background. He speaks the word. He shows the authority. And he sent out messengers to tell everybody about it. But then what's the next section? And here's what Israel did with him. And what did they do? 
Reject, reject, reject. They were blind to his works, they were deaf to God's word, and therefore they were deserted by God's spirit. And so where are we today? We should be, by rights and sanity, living in a world where, you know, everything's been transformed and the nation of Israel has gladly embraced its Messiah, but we're not. And Matthew's now explained why that is. Think of what a pressing question that was to his first readers as the the temple was still standing. Israel had not yet been judged uh, in, by Titus, general Titus, tearing it down, tearing down the temple. And, but they're looking at a nation that's still rejecting and unbelieving. And what happened? This, this is what happened. God revealed his Messiah. God attested his Messiah. Israel rejected her Messiah. And so where we are now is sowing the word, sowing the word, and watching the kingdom progress until the harvest at the end of the age, as these parables tell us. Do you see? So that's the flow of the story, and that's where we are. So any, just a few takeaways here. First of all, anyone who says, well, I would just believe if you gave me evidence, is lying. The problem has never been evidence. Read Romans 1. The problem has never been evidence. Every bit of evidence the unbeliever has, he denies and suppresses. So here, did these people not have enough evidence? They had evidence by the bucket load. Did they believe because, well, there it is. There's the evidence. No. No, because we're not machines. We're sinners. We're not objective. We're fallen. And we pervert the truth that God sends to us. So that is one. The other is, don't be disheartened when you find that your effects, your labors in evangelism don't produce the bumper crop you hope. That's just what Jesus said to expect. Four soils, only one's going to produce. It'll produce a lot, but don't expect that this will be the time uh, necessarily. God can do what he wishes, but for dramatic, huge steps forward, expect a long process. And, and that's the final takeaway. Expect a long process, but we're right on track. Why? Because all authority has been given to Jesus Christ, Matthew 11. Because No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and the one He chooses to reveal Him to. And we live in the day of that invitation. Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden. The law can't give you rest. The kingdom of man can't give you rest. But I will give you rest. That's the day we live in today, the day of invitation and waiting. And so what should we do? Labor, invite, and wait in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for what it teaches us, especially for the Christ it reveals to us. I'd pray, Father, for anyone who's walked in not knowing the Lord Jesus, especially those who thought they did but are coming to realize they really didn't, that you'll bring them to repentance and faith in the actual Jesus. And those who knew knew that they aren't as they hear the truth of Christ, oh God, Remove the blinders from their eyes and lead them to saving faith in Christ. And we thank you for your sovereignty and and your love and control. And we trust you, we love you, and we thank you for our great Jesus. What a wonderful Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.